Thanks for downloading this podcast from Love Sport Radio. For more, go to lovesportradio.com for all the latest podcasts, news and views. Or for more, follow us at Love Sport Radio on Twitter. When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Fan Show here on Love Sport Radio. You're with me, Johnny Burrow and Giles Aniam and Dan Zachiri there. Giles Aniam, of course, of Gunnerstown. Dan Zachiri of the Daily Telegraph. And that bed wasn't your usual Arsenal bed. It's because we here at Love Sport Radio are commemorating the life, of course, of Doris Day, who passed away today at the age of 97. But gents, a cheery Arsenal fan show today with Dan Zachiri because there have been two games since I saw you last, two Arsenal wins and two very competent performances. Um, yeah, um... I don't know if I'd go as far as say it was they were competent performances because weren't they? Valencia, I think um, after the initial 20, 20 minutes um, where they were dominating us, I think we got we just kind of got the measure of them in the end, and our front two was what turned the game um, against Burnley. It was a weird end of season game. It it really wasn't a sort of a, you expect sort of like an exhibition, maybe even a testimonial kind of game. But that was back and forth, wasn't it? It was really it was a really um, quite entertaining game. But but what concerned me was again our defence looked so poor against Burnley, really poor. Like whenever the ball got into the box towards Wood or Barnes, we just sort of lost our heads. It could have been a lot different if it weren't for. A it's game. been a bit of a theme in the Premier League over the last two or three months that you've had no teams on the beach at all. Yeah. Um, I think you've got a lot of managers with goals and ideas for next season. So the the old days of teams getting to 40 points and then putting their feet up, I think, have gone. Uh, I agree with Charles actually about the, the performance in Valencia. It actually reminded me of uh, a bit of a Wenger era performance in that. Arsenal were a little bit open, a little bit too easily pulled apart at times, but their attacking quality completely overwhelmed Valencia uh, and proved the difference. And it was the type of game I expected to see a little bit more of in the league this season, uh, particularly away from home. You know, open, end-to-end, but Arsenal uh, relying on the quality of their strikers rather than uh, sitting back uh, and trying to grind out results. Uh, There was a real sort of relish uh, and zest with which Arsenal... Uh, sort of hunted the third and fourth goal in that game, which hasn't always been the case because when Arsenal have gone ahead in a lot of games this season, 1-2-0, they've kind of tried to control the game and see things out. Uh, I thought it was quite refreshing seeing that that side of them back. Do you think there's a psychological aspect there for Unai Emery in the sense that he's been so successful in the Europa League over these past few years and he hasn't quite worked out the Premier League yet? Do you think he feels more confident in sending them out to play aggressive football when he's competing in Europe? Uh, yes, probably so, yeah. Um, he seems to understand the competition. The con- Maybe the continental game is different from the domestic game, isn't it? Like, yeah, it's a bit know, slower. It's a bit slower. Um, there's a lot more strategy, strategy that goes into it. Um, and, and whereas the domestic game, I think, um, I wouldn't say he's done, he's, he's kind of uh, been ignorant of the Premier League and the strengths of basically the, the, the team's top to bottom, but it's, it's, you know, it's been a, a quite a rude awakening, I think, this season. The other thing in the Europa League is almost every opponent tries to play out from the back, mm. which I think Unai Emery really likes to set up against uh, with the way he instructs his teams to press. I think he's on record earlier in the season after might have been West Ham at home, maybe Watford at home, September, October time. And he said, 
basically against teams who play long balls forward, it's a waste of time pressing so we don't bother. Uh, which I think answers what a lot of Arsenal fans have been wondering is why do Arsenal press in some games and not in others? But he seems in the Europa League against teams who are trying to build from the back to go, right, come on guys, mm. this is the time we can go for it here. That's an interesting suggestion, isn't it? That if you try and press a team who aren't shy about lumping it long, they might just go, well, all right, lads, and kick it over your head. Yep. But we don't see Liverpool do that, do we? I mean, Klopp sets a team up to press. He sets them up to press as a unit in a very, very high-intensity, highly efficient, highly organised way. And actually, they press whatever happens. So do you think Arsenal perhaps aren't quite as confident in the quality of their press? I think he's... I think the Liverpool's trajectory has been quite a, quite a journey. I think they were much more high intensity when he first yeah. arrived. And I think they, they, they kind of, they pick and choose their moments now. I've, you probably know more about it, Dan, yeah. than I do. But They've definitely scaled yeah. back this season. Uh, but in, you're right, in the first season Klopp was mm. there, he almost went, right, let's go to the most extreme version of, uh, of my ideas and then we'll work back from there once you've got it. Whereas, and I think a lot of Arsenal fans, from what I detect, kind of quite want Unai Emery to do something similar mm. where they can see quite a fundamentalist vision yeah. uh, and get that set in stone and then tweak and, you know, cajole from there. Yeah. Do you subscribe, but, guys, to these anxieties that Arsenal fans have had throughout the season, particularly at around the halfway point, where even when the results have been going okay and the performances have looked broadly encouraging, there's been an anxiety there because people feel that they don't know what Unai Emery's plan is in terms of a philosophy. Can you see that coming to the fore or do you think he's still just tinkering? Uh, to be honest, I, I can't really see it. Apart from playing out from the back, I can't really see any other sort of really sort of hard and fast or hard, hard, hard-wired um, philosophy, but then as somebody said, I saw, I heard somebody say once, uh, quite recently, that that might be we, what we see might be his philosophy, whatever that is. Yeah, I think I'll go into bat for him for a couple of minutes because it feels like <laughs> feels like we've been a bit doom and gloom the first <laughs> ten minutes. But the third goal in Valencia, uh, or was it the the second goal, the Lacazette one? Mm. Uh, I think that might be a hint at what Unai Emery's trying to get towards, in that it came from Arsenal pouncing on a Valencia mistake mm. uh, and I think force creating chances from turnovers is something I think he wants to utilise a lot more rather than the sort of 15-20 pass combinations that we used to see under Arsene Wenger uh, tippy-tapping around the edge of the box. Uh, I also think that if you look back through Unai Emery's career he's never been a guy who's played a back three. Mm. Uh, I think he's playing a back three to compensate for the weaknesses of certain individuals and Arsenal in pre-season didn't play with a back three, they played with a back four. They started the season in a back four, and I came to the conclusion myself a couple of weeks ago that I'm going to perhaps hold back on judgments on Unai Emery's style or identity until he can pick a settled mm. back four. Do you think that this broader popularity of the back three, not just at Arsenal but across the Premier League, is a question of fashion? Because we've seen this a lot in football in the last few years where a system which previously hasn't really been utilised by anyone gets used by one top team in a really successful way and suddenly that's the way we played. The 4-2-3-1 just came in. Everyone was doing it. The number 10 was the most important position. And particularly since Conte, it seems that three at the back or five at the back, as the cynics amongst us certainly used to call it, has become ubiquitous. Do you think there's an element of Unai Emery just trying to do what's the done thing. I think Dan's here on the point where is he, he doesn't know, he, he feels that they're just not secure yeah. as a team playing for, I think he, like he says his preferred formation might be 4-2-3-1 or 
think last some, some variation Earl on that. Was, maybe yeah. four four two, four, maybe yeah. four three three. Yeah. But he doesn't have the it personnel. It starts with a four, I think. Yeah, the, exactly. He doesn't. He doesn't have the personnel, and it might just be a safety first mechanism. But in a way, he's used it to be quite aggressive at times as mm -hmm. well. You know, um, with his with his formation when he's played a back three. Yeah. If you get the wing backs high enough, then it can be quite an attacking yeah. formation. It's a bit th these trends. It's a bit like. Isaac Newton's, you know, every action has an opposite reaction. When you get teams, you, you, there's a lot of teams with forwards in their squad and they want to try and get two of them on the pitch, but they don't want to sacrifice control in midfield. Having three at the back is an easy way or mm. easier way to get two strikers in uh, than it is with a back four. And, you know, conversely to that, when you're up against a team with two forwards, like, say, Son and Kane or Martial Rashford or Aubameyang Lacazette, it's you know tempting to go for three centre-backs so you've got the extra player against them. Talking of forwards and just moving back to that win against Burnley yesterday, excellent to see not just Aubameyang score two and secure the golden boot in the process, something we'll come on to later in the show, but great to see Eddie Nketiah score a Premier League goal as well. I know, Giles, you've had your doubts about him in the past. How impressed were you with his performance and how far can he go in the game? Um, it's just... He's be, he, he looks lively when he comes on, and th that's the thing with the youngsters. They they're not they're fearless. They will try things. I think I'm not that I have doubts. I just think he needs a spell away playing men's football, regular time away playing men's football to develop that side of his game. You know, at the moment he's still raw. I think he's. Do you think he's not tough enough? I think he's not. I think mentally he's tough enough. I just think physically, you know, he's not strong enough at the moment and playing him for 10 minutes or 20 minutes here against big guys like the Burnley guys is not really going to do him a lot of good if he's playing you know every once every 10 games I think he needs that regular tech game time to sort of like develop and scoring goals is a natural thing though mm. players either have it or they don't and the good strike is that straightforward uh, uh, yes is an acceptable answer I'm not I'm not uh, getting at you there I'm <laughs> genuinely interested do you think that the great strikers just all have a knack yeah, I think yeah. I think most do. I think m most top strikers score goals all through the youth age groups uh, and from an early age. It might take them a, a little while to for that to correlate into senior football, uh, but he he does seem to have that sort of natural mm. knack. Uh, I think he'd be helped wherever he plays, whether it's Arsenal or somewhere else. I think he needs to play with a partner at the moment. I think if Arsenal were playing one up front in the Premier League, I think that would be far too big an ask. Mm. I think United have even found this with with Rashford, who's you know, far more advanced and further down the line than Eddie mm. Nketiah is at the moment. I think even he struggled to lead the mm. line, and, and I think you know very, very highly of him. But it's playing playing up front on your own is a real tough, tough gig. It's a tough, tough gig, and at the moment, Arsenal have two players who are exceptional at doing it. Coming up, let's hear how they were so successful against Valencia. This is Love Sport. You are listening to the Arsenal Fan Show here on Love Sport Radio. You're with me, Johnny Burrow and Giles Aniam of Gunnerstown and Daniel Zuchiri of the Daily Telegraph. And Daniel, you were mentioning earlier in the show that you felt that the Arsenal performance in that second leg against Valencia, which of course saw them through to an all-English final in Baku, showed excellence going forward, but perhaps instability at the back. The front two were superb. Mm -hmm. They combined perfectly. What did you make of Aubameyang's performance? What did you make of Lacazette's performance? I thought Aubameyang's performance was his most complete in an Arsenal shirt. It called to mind, I know it's not quite as high a level, but it called to mind Thierry Henry's performances away at Inter and Roma, for me, where he scored a hat-trick. Uh, I thought, funnily enough, the best thing he did in the game and the bit 
that made you really sit up and think, "Crikey, he's having a re- he's really on it tonight." Was when he he uh, dribbled down the right wing and picked Lacazette out for the actually the chance that didn't go in mm. uh, that clipped the outside of the post. Mm. Uh, the sniffing out chances in the box, uh, we know he's got that in his locker. The one at the near post was a trademark of Bamiyang, uh, and the one into the roof and the net is one we've seen before as well. Yeah, I, I, he got an 11 out of 10 for me that night. He was absolutely brilliant. And I think not only his dribbling and his goal scoring, but his work rate off the ball defensively, I thought, was prodigious. I think both of them, you know, uh, we talk a lot about Lacazette's work rate off the ball, like how he gets back in, he, he's, a, he's a hustler, he disrupts. But I was watching, from our vantage point in, in Mastaya, we, we were standing right behind the goal, so we could, from a tactical point of view, we could see everything that was unfolding and... You know, that's, there was a certain point where Emery must have realised, like, look, you know, Maitland-Niles needs help out here. It was too much of a job for 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 Torreira to cover that much ground, but it was it was left to sort of um, uh, Aubameyang to work back in and sort of double up on Guedes and the left back. I can't. Is it Gaia? Gaia. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, who were really making loads of inroads. He was doing so much work. The the amount of sprints. I would love to know how many sprints he did. Um, Aubameyang did for that match because. He was up and down, back and forth, like uh, a piston, a real workhorse, you know. It was their tie, the whole semi-final, both legs. It was Lacazette and exactly. Aubameyang's tie. Yeah. I think I think you could say you saw the um, the Prince of Emery over the Napoli uh, two legs. Mm. I think that's maybe where uh, tactically made a bit of a difference. For me, both legs of this were all about front those two. front two. Yeah. They really just, you know, by hell or high water, they dragged Arsenal yeah, you know, basically. Really, really through. They did. And of course, Emery has used them together at points in the season where he's felt he needed to go for it. He did it against United. He's done it sparingly, but he has done it, as you say, in the Europa League. Do you think that Arsenal are at their best with them both on the pitch? I think we're at our best when we try and go for it, you know. Um, and we're at the best when them two decide it's time for them to go for it, mm-hmm. you know. I think there's been times, like you said, they've been on the field together and it's not quite clicked. They're not either one's not working hard enough or it's not one's day or, or like it's been a bit emotional he's having to go at the referee but you know when they both decide right let's let's sort this out together that's when we're uh, uh, our best and that's when the other players take the cure for them you know that's Cer- how I see it. certainly in current form Arsenal are at their best with both of them on the pitch yeah, as Giles says it's not been the case all season I, th- I think they're both they're both mucking in with each other's jobs a little bit more at the moment I think earlier in the season there was a clearer division of labour in that mm. Lacazette would come short, do a lot of the dirty work. Lacazette, uh, Aubameyang, sorry, would stay on the extremities of the game, really, you know, looking to run in behind. Whereas now they're both doing uh, a little bit of everything, mm. which I think um, is a lot better, is a lot, offering a lot more variety to Arsenal's attack and it's harder to defend against. You know what I've noticed actually on Thursday is I think Emery's asking a lot of players to do more than one role because mm-hmm. I was watching Torreira and he was quite advanced quite a lot of the time, but also he was being tasked to get back and so, because he's the only player, he's the only player in the midfield that can actually get back and tackle with any sort of like um, com- composure. But a lot of our players were being asked to double up and do more than one role, not only the front two. Um, I have to say, I didn't really think much of Ozil's performance on Thursday. <laughs> really, I mean, he made a few good passes. He might have been involved. I think he was involved in one of the goals. He was, he was neat. He was tidy. But mm. I was saying on Thursday night I think I even tweeted from the stadium that this is the kind of game where we're not going to ask him to get back but we are going to ask you to try and dominate the game yeah. this is this is this is you know the, 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 Emery set up the formation played a t- two splits right so that you could 
get on the ball and, and, and offer and deliver. And I didn't see him doing that. I thought he had a good 20 minutes in the middle of the game, but I, I agree. When I was watching it in the opening period, it, it reminded me slightly of Barcelona in that the two strikers and Ozil were just staying, just not even defending. Mm. They were just staying high up the pitch, waiting for the counter-attack. Uh, and Arsenal were def- defending with only with seven outfield players. And I was watching it thinking, I'm, I'm not sure Arsenal are good enough to do this. I, th- I, th- I think the two strikers, fine, leave them up. But I'm, I'm not sure two strikers plus Ozil up. Mm. I, th- I thought that was maybe one risk too many. I thought we needed another body, either 5-4-1 or 4-4-2 or... You know, to defend with eight players because we were defending with seven in the mm. in the first twenty minutes and getting picked off. The people who seek to defend Urzel and they are getting fewer and further between. It has to be said. Often say that he's had a tough job. That you can't expect him to dominate every game. But actually, as a creative player who supposedly thrives on playing glorious, raking through passes to unlock defenses, surely. The dream scenario is having not one but two excellent strikers in front of you, one of whom with electric pace and a third of a golden boot, as it were. He's not got an excuse. He's got four Premier League assists since January. Surely a top creative player with a top front two in front of him does more than Ertzel's doing at the moment. I think, Dan, you said it offline. He's become really safe and quite Mm. introspective or uh, inhibited, introverted with his passing. We don't really know whether that's instruction or whether that's just the general tone being set by Emery. I think I think Emery's football has been spoken about a lot is based upon b- building attacks in the down the flanks and getting the fullbacks in mind. So I, I I do think Özil maybe is being bypassed a lot more uh, than he used to. If you look at his touches and passes completed, they're all down from what uh, we've come to expect over the last four or five years. But I do think um, you know he has to bear some responsibility as well in that. I think, as you say, he's playing it too safe, too timid, and he looks he looks like he's playing half a yard slower mm. uh, than he used to. I think he was always very underrated as a as an athlete. Mm. Um, I used to make this point quite a lot that you know when he got his legs opened up, he was quite quick. Mm. Uh, he's quite but strong as well. He's not he's not as slight as people think he is. He can yeah. be, but uh, at the moment he seems to have really tone that down and um, whether he's, is he protecting himself I, I don't know but um, I also think playing behind on paper it looks great like oh, on FIFA it, it would probably work brilliantly having Ozil They're quick, behind, so it would ha- work. having <laughs> Ozil behind the two strikers but um, throughout his career he's always played in a 4-2-3-1 I think behind one striker and I think when you play that front two particularly if you're splitting the, the forwards you need that number 10 to run through the gap that they leave, which is why Ramsey was excel- excelling in that position. I think Ozil's a little bit less comfortable in that role, even mm. if you know he has been running into the box. But if he does run into the box, often he isn't found because mm. people look for the two strikers. So that might be why his involvement in the game looks quite quiet sometimes. Mm. Well, the biggest question, of course, about Mesut Ozil is whether he's perhaps approaching his best before date. That's a question we'll be answering later in the show. If you'd like to get in touch, that number is 0208 70 20 558. Would you show Ozil the door in the summer transfer window? Gents, I'm going to come back to where we started with the performance of that front two against Valencia. At their best, when they combine, which they do, of course, on and off the pitch, they seem to be good mates. They are scintillating. Would you start them in Arsenal's best eleven as a pair? I'm not talking just about current form, but ahead of next year, should Arsenal be playing two up top? I'll put them. I would play them 
in the starting eleven. I might slightly differ in terms of I'd, I I would play like as I've said this quite often. Play him as a nine point five. Play him behind um, um, Aubameyang, and then have you know whoever else you're going to bring in from the you know outside. But I would like to see Aubameyang playing ahead of Lacazette. They could mix it up. They don't just have to be a split pair. They could they could switch they could switch positions. But they I think they're good enough, intelligent enough to do to play more than one kind of role. As things stand, I think they're in Arsenal's best eleven. I think unless there's a dramatic reshaping of the squad in terms of if Arsenal went out and spent big money on say two wingers mm. or something like that that forced you to go to a four three three maybe or something like that. But I don't really see them doing that. So yeah, I think in all likelihood they start a lot of games up front next season, which I think then requires Arsenal to have two players who can come on for them and cover for them. Because mm. you can't you can't play they can't play fifty games a season. Mm. Uh and if Danny Welbeck, which he, he is going um, and we've already talked about Nketiah possibly going on loan. You start thinking, well, who's gonna who's gonna cover for them? Um, which I, there's been a couple of links today with Wilfred Zaha, yeah. haven't there? Yeah. Uh, who I Are think you spending inter- seventy million quid on a player to cover your centre forwards? Uh, not only that, I mean, he can he adds a different dynamic. He's a I call him a jack in the box kind of person. The player, that, he's the player that we need that we we kind of lack since Alexis Sanchez is gone. You know, he doesn't really, he plays, he just needs somebody, a, a bit a of a bit, berserker. A, a bit of a soloist. Yeah. yeah can do yeah, something on exactly, their own. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't need things put yeah. on a plate. And he definitely can do that. He has that ability. Maybe not, he might be a bit erratic sometimes. It might not be as consistent, but you, we do miss that kind of player that can do something off the cuff. Definitely. Mm, Absolutely. And for now, both of Arsenal's front two are almost undroppable. Certainly, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. He's won the Golden Boot. He's one of three Premier League players to do so. Coming up, did he deserve it? Does he play with Lacazette week in, week out? And will they both be at the club next season? This is Love Sport. You're listening to Johnny Burrow here on Love Sport Radio, being expertly serenaded there by the glorious Doris Day, who very sadly passed away earlier today at the grand old age of 97. I'm delighted to say I'm joined in the studio by Giles Aniam of Gunnerstown and Dan Zachiri of the Daily Telegraph. Gents, we've been talking a lot about the excellence, and I use that word advisedly, excellence of that Arsenal front two. Of course, one half of it has been directly recognised for his individual brilliance yesterday, confirming that he is the Premier League Golden Boot winner, one of three after scoring twice away at Burnley. He, of course, might argue that he should be the sole winner of that Golden Boot. He's played significantly fewer minutes than either Sadio Mane or Mo Salah, do you think he deserves to win it outright? I don't think it's ever been decided on minutes played or no, whatever. It's just sadly not. Yeah, you know, it's just, it is a factor though, isn't it? Um, As in, if you've played fewer minutes, you have fewer yeah, opportunities yeah. to score and goals. I think our conversion rate is pretty much unsurpassed. Yeah, it's the totally best in the league. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I suppose if you want to do by, go by underlying numbers, then he should win it outright. He should be the the overall winner. But yeah, and he, he's done it in a team that finished with 70 points, not 97 as well. Yeah. So he, he can claim a bit of a moral victory in that in that sense. He's the man getting the individual plaudits. But I think a lot of Arsenal fans would feel that his strike partner, Lacazette, has arguably offered more to the side in terms of his overall game and across the whole season. Mm. Do you think he's actually been more important than well, Aubameyang? He's Arsenal's player of the season, isn't he? Uh, uh, Lacazette. Is yes, he? The yeah. yeah, the club player of the season. Yeah, the club player of the season, yeah. Yep. 
So um, and he yeah he he's all round game. Um, just complements the team much better, you know. Um, Obama Yang is the elite goal scorer yeah. of the two of them, though, no question. Yeah. I mean, uh, Lacazette might be uh, an elite footballer, elite player, mm. uh, an elite all round forward, but the only there's only one elite goal scorer between them, and that's Obama Yang. It's um, funny. I was I, I, I read a stat today that said I think they've kind of played with not too dissimilar minutes mm -hmm. throughout the Premier League season. And uh, Lacazette takes 2.3 shots per, uh, per game, whereas Aubameyang uh, takes 2.6 shots per game. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, but Aubameyang's, obviously, his numbers are much higher. Because he sniffs out chances in yeah. the six-yard box exactly. from uh, from close in. Mm. Yeah, I, I, this is slightly self-indulgent, but I remember working at a, a Wenger press conference just after Lacazette signed. Mm. And he spoke at length, actually, uh, in the newspaper briefing about the fact Lacazette was a guy who uh, had a low volume of shots, but his shots were of quite high quality. I, th I think he, he contrasted them with Harry Kane, who takes five or six shots per game. Uh, and there's kind of two ways to skin a cat. Mm. But yeah, I, d I think Aubameyang has been quite underappreciated uh, this season. I think Arsenal fans are a bit like Joni Mitchell. They don't know what they've got till it's gone. <laughs> um, and you know, Arsenal spent years trying to f mm. find a goal scorer of this calibre. Uh, to as good as uh, Giroud was a, a good Premier League striker, but they spent years trying to upgrade on him. Do you think the reason why he's underappreciated is because, as lots of Arsenal fans, Arsenal fans will say, he hasn't come, he hasn't come to the big games. You know, uh, if Aubameyang had scored more in big games, mm. he'd probably be universally seen, recognised by Arsenal fans as, you know, perhaps. Uh, yeah, I think I think also, with the exception of games like uh, the Valencia one, mm. he does have these games where he's quite quiet and uninvolved mm. and doesn't always catch the eye, mm. apart from the fact he scored mm. the winning goal yeah. or something quite quite important. And then he's also, um, he, he's quite an obvious signing. You don't need to be Sven Mislintat to know spending mm. 60 million on Aubameyang is probably going to work out. <laughs> you know, so he's not. I think I think fans sometimes want someone to call their own. Yeah. And I think I think when someone feels a bit of a gun for hire, they don't always warm to them as much. I think mm. Alexis Sanchez suffered yeah. from that as well a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Um, I'm interested by your suggestion, Dan, that Aubameyang is the only elite goal scorer yep. there because I think you're quite possibly right. But when Lacazette was brought into the club, he was fresh off a season in Ligue 1 where he played 30 league games and scored 28 league goals. Of course, one of the reasons why he was signed was because of his all-round elite forward play, as mm. you see it. But I think when the club signed him, they were expecting an elite goal scorer. He got 14 in the Premier League last year, 13 this year. Do you think we could see him push 20, 25? I think a lot of that depends on Arsenal's development. I think Arsenal need to start creating a lot more chances and getting more shots off and generally controlling play and spending a lot more time in the opposition, sustained periods in the opposition final third. I think if they start doing that, then Lacazette and Lacazette starts getting enough shots off, uh, yeah, the, the numbers will go up because his quality of shooting and, and finishing is very good. But he's, I think, what was he finished the season with 13 league goals? Mm, I think he was in the mid-teens yeah. last season. So 14 that, last year. Yeah. With that, an injury. So that, that's the reason I say he's not quite, uh, yeah, with an injury, that's true. Uh, he's not quite an elite goal getter at the moment, but uh, I'd love to be proved wrong. I think um, when you look at when he was his time at Lyon, especially when after Gomis left and they kind of centred the team around him and Fakir, Fakir is 
really kind of he complimented Fakir very yeah. they complimented each other very well Fakir was, he's that kind of dribbler he, he creates openings for other people dipping like, in onto dipping, a left yeah, foot as well yeah you know and they played a quite a, I think Leon played actually quite a lot of counter-attacking football yeah. which kind of opened spaces for him and Corne and the others um, we've also got to take into account that a lot of those 28 goals he scored for Leon nearly maybe over a, maybe a third of them were pennies I think during his career at Leon, he's been he was known as the penalty merchant. Sort I, th- of thing. I think he's a very collaborative yeah, forward. Like he, he loves he loves it's playing. A very tactful way of putting. Doesn't he, score that many. No, but he he loves linking up. Mm. He he loves playing with a partner and combining with mm. people. And I think this is why you can't divorce it from Arsenal's problems away from home as a collective. Mm. I think it was sometimes why he struggled in away games because. He's left isolated, mm. and he's quite. When he's isolated, he can be smothered quite easily. And you know, you 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 hit a point there, Dan. When you said he's a collaborative player, I think he doesn't work. Th- he might work well with with Ozil. I'm sure they do. They have come around mm. pretty well. But Ozil's not a is not a great shot taker. And I think when I watched him with Fakir, Fakir wasn't shy about taking shots as well as creating chances. And I think, as you said, they they kind of he works. He complements players well that can do both quite well and if we're gonna if we're going to say let's say let's say we we got rid of Aubameyang we went with Lacazette as our number one striker I think you need to get goal scoring wide men yeah and people who can run him and behind as well he's, he's exactly. worked very well with Ramsey and Welbeck yeah him, him and Welbeck have played very well up front together because Welbeck does a lot of the hard yards exactly. clearing defenders out collapsing mm-hmm. defenses and it creates the space for Lacazette to drop in and shoot whereas trying to think of the games Arsenal have played it I think it was the first half at home to Leicester and there was an away game recently might have been Wolves where Arsenal have gone Lacazette up front with Awobi Ozil and Mkhitaryan behind it and it's just everyone yeah. coming to the ball yeah. everyone just wanting to pop Playing five ten yard ball passes yeah. off and it's just not the right blend yeah. I think if you plonk Lacazette uh, in Firmino's position in uh, yeah, Liverpool it'd be absolutely so. fantastic absolutely. That, yeah. that's the setup. If you're going to play him up front on his yeah. own, that's the setup he needs. Yeah. There's a broader question, of course, with these two, which is that of their futures. Abamyang is 29, Lacazette is 27. He'll be turning 28 a fortnight tomorrow. Abamyang's current deal runs out in two years' time. He'll be 31 at the time. And we're hearing rumours of a potential two year extension on top of that at the rate of £250,000 a week keeping him at, at the club until he's 33. Now, he's just won a Premier League golden boot. There's very little argument about his quality as a spectacular goal scorer, a spectacular forward, but it's big money. And is there any way of knowing what he's going to be like in four years' time? You don't know what he's going to be like, but I look at the player he is. He hardly gets injured. Mm. He hardly spends any time on the injury table. He looks after himself very, very well. He sniffs chances. You never That's the last thing that leaves you when you get older. And I think his pace won't be so much of an issue even when he's... If you look at someone like Jamie Vardy, he keeps himself really well. He's 31. Still, is he the top English goal scorer yeah. in the Premier yeah. League right now? 18 so, yeah. goals. I don't... When I see that, I think that's quite a safe bet in terms of... You know, a man going into his thirties, I think that's quite. A, he's very light on his feet, isn't he's he? Very he's light. Like he doesn't pound away on his ankle yeah. joints or his knee joints. He, he looks like even when out of season, he looks like he's at his fighting weight. Mm. He doesn't seem to be out of shape. This, this is the guy that takes. What I'm saying, this is the guy that takes care of himself. And I think going into his thirties, I wouldn't worry so much about his longevity and his productivity. You know, going into it his, seems. It seems slightly. I, I don't quite see what the urgency is to do it, but because I don't think too many clubs. I think when Arsenal signed a Bamiyang, they were well aware. They weren't. Good, they were very unlikely to recoup mm. a fee, 
So I think I don't I don't think they're doing this to protect his value to sell him necessarily. Maybe it's just pure, you know, rewards. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. like like happens in all places of work. Mm-hmm. Is there a concern about pace? He's a player with electric pace. It's a big part of his game. It's not the only part of his game. His movement is very intelligent. But a 33-year-old Aubameyang is not going to run the 100 metres at the same time that a 29-year-old does. Is there a worry there that his it, end result might drop off? It's just you, With maturity comes knowledge, experience, wisdom. You, you choose your runs. You choose your moments. And that's what I'm hoping, I expect. He'll do. Just like with Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah, you I, know? I've actually been quite surprised since we signed him how little... He relies on his pace, mm-hmm. certainly over a long distance. Uh, I'd caveat that by saying there might be a lot of chances he gets on the end of in the box where he bursts over five yards mm. that he could lose in a year or two. But Ar- Ars- Arsenal don't bang balls over the top mm. for him to run on from the halfway line like a 18-year-old Nicholas Anelka. Mm. Like, <laughs> uh, for one thing, Arsenal, no, opposition teams don't give Arsenal those sort of spaces to mm. hit. So he's, he's not making massive runs in behind mm. every game. It's it's the short bursts over mm. three or four yards that you know are going to be tested. But you know, as long as he avoids a serious injury, yeah. you know, here's hoping. Well, we're happy, of course, to have Aubameyang here for not just another two years, potentially another four. And if he keeps up more than twenty goals a season for there, no Arsenal fan is going to be unhappy to have him at the club. That said. Meza Ertzel, there are already Arsenal fans who are perhaps less than delighted to have him still sticking around. Is it yet at a point of, I'll drive him there myself? We'll be talking about it next. This is Love. Meza Ertzel has become something of a scapegoat for Arsenal fans. Whenever he features and the team don't play well, fingers are pointed. Meza Ertzel's there, he's just standing there, he does nothing. He doesn't work for the team. Whether or not we think that's fair, his end product hasn't been at the world-class level you would expect, not just of a player of his reputation, but of a player on his salary, a reported £350,000 a week. Is he approaching a sell-by date? Is it time to cut Arsenal's losses? For me, I think we're moving to a situation where we're, we're not playing his style of football. He's becoming less of an influence. I think he's been superseded by the front two. They, the, the team seemed to defer to them rather than him. I know there's been stats being thrown out that you know, you know, whether he's playing or whether he's not playing, we don't, we don't. There's no improvement in the team's results when he's not playing. But I think now we come to a point where it's kind of, you know, we don't really need him as much. We don't depend on him as much as we used to. And as we were saying offline with Brighton, they got to a, a natural point with Chris Hutton that it's, it's, we've, it's run its cycle. Mm-hmm. We need to go a different direction. And I think we're beginning to see the signs of that. You know, we've run its cycle. Emery thinks it's run its cycle with Ozil. We're playing a different kind of football. And it's just how things are, mm-hmm. you know, in, in life. You just Sometimes you just got to make that decision and, you know, you move on. And I think the argument, put the wages aside, is quite a moot and evasive one, to be honest, because it is all about the wages, mm. particularly the way Arsenal operate with the so-called self-sustaining model. Uh where they are already quite close to the cap of what their wage bill can be. And that's the question with Ozil. It's not, is he a player of requisite calibre to play for Arsenal? That's been obvious for a mm. while. He, you know, he, he definitely is, um, certainly in, in previous incarnations. Uh, it's Can that £350,000 per week be spread around the squad in a way that makes Arsenal stronger collectively than uh, just going to one player and one player who perhaps, I, I tend to agree that 
he may have seen he may be past his peak. You know, we've seen this with a lot of players, Fabregas, Rooney. He he was a very prominent player, very young. You know, it was three mm. World Cups ago where he tore England to shreds. Uh, he's played for two big clubs. He's, he's played a lot. I know he's missed <laughs> quite a few away games, but certainly in his early days at Arsenal, he played a lot of minutes, played almost mm. every minute of every game. Uh, so he's 31 in November. So, yeah, it could be the case that um, time is mm. is taking a bit of a toll. Also, there was a good piece, I think it was ESPN, who, who picked up on this wider trend that there are these slightly mercurial playmakers uh, who are potentially for sale in the summer, but nobody really seems to want. Oh, Isco, James Rodriguez, there was a, a few players. Do you think they're going out of fashion, Dan? At the moment, yeah. I mean, undoubtedly, once Ozil retires, they'll swing back into fashion mm-hmm. and everyone will say, why can't we have a Mesut Ozil? But it, do, it does seem that the level of organisation and coordination in the game now, there isn't a great deal of room for somebody who just floats, floats into spaces and plays slightly apart from the team. Uh, I think you have to be quite an exceptional team to get away with that. And a little bit like Paul Pogba at Manchester United, there's a strange thing going on where, without sounding too sycophantic towards the player, Arsenal are probably not good enough to carry Mesut Ozil in Mm. the same way that United are not a good enough Mm. team to carry Paul Pogba. Mm. Um, Which is not to say, you know... You know, bow bow at the feet of these players, and you know the club's always always comes first. But it's it's a tricky one. I think Özil's always been a player who complements other top class players rather than the player who drags mm. good average to good players to great things. I think there's another point with Özil as well, which is one area where we've talked time and time again this season about Arsenal perhaps not being at their strongest is in having attacking players who can link the play, who can bring others in. Mkhitaryan's tried it, hasn't quite worked. There are question marks still over Alex Awobi's end product. Even if Ertzel is less than perfect, and I think we can all agree that he is, if he goes, are Arsenal then just completely bereft of creative talent? Depends on who they bring in. You know, and you can get you can become creative in different ways. Yeah. You look at Liverpool. They don't have a number 10. They got rid of number 10 for 150 million. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, Yeah, the the Arsenal fan in me uh, thinks exactly the same as you do, Johnny. You'd look down at the squad and go, well, you know, where are the creators? Where's the the guile? Where are the passers here? But then you look actually look around at Arsenal's rivals Mm. and there aren't natural creators. Christian Eriksen's probably the closest and even he's probably a slightly more rounded player mm. at the moment than mm. Meza Ozil is and he's a and bit they, more adaptable they, they don't really, and they he don't, shoots yeah but they don't depend on him neither no you know, that's true you know, they, they play they kind of they don't I don't, see, I don't think they play specifically through him yeah you I, was know. Th- I was thinking about this earlier that actually in relation to the golden boot you've had two teams really really dominant 97 98 points and another four teams detached from the rest of the league really because of because of money and yet there hasn't really been a dominant individual mm. performance like it's, it's a bit weird that you have two teams at that higher points mm. tally and no one's got more than 22 goals mm. I don't know whether that's a quirk of availability or something but you've got uh, Mane Salah Aubameyang Lacazette Kane Hazard and it's all very it's all quite uh, egalitarian up there at the moment and it's it's kind of the year where the team's the star mm. and the days of building a team around one player seems to be you know 
That seems to be going out of fashion. Mm. Mm. And if Arsenal were to build the team around one player, I think it would be fair to say that that player wouldn't be Mesut Ertzel at the moment. I'm going to put you both on the spot. Yes or no, Mesut Ertzel, do you keep him for next year? No. No. Okay, so we're, get, we're getting rid. We're cutting our losses on Mesut. With that in mind, who comes in? We've seen links to conventional tens. We've seen links to attacking midfielders with whom Umay... Unai Emery's worked in the past. For example, Ava Benega has been heavily linked. He's aging. He works hard. I'm not sure he's quite the man. Has anyone stood out to you two? I, I really don't like going for individuals. I know we've spoken about Zaha and in the past, you know, Pepe and whatnot. But I think it's just a type of player that I'm looking for. That I hope we're looking for. So you're not looking for a like-for-like replacement. You're Absolutely not looking not. for a creative 10. You're looking no. for someone that to can... provide that invention, but perhaps from a different situation. Yeah. I mean, I think if, like I said before we went off air, or if you're going with Lacazette up front, you're going to need goal-scoring support, support strikers. If you're going with Aubameyang up front, you probably need a bit of goal-scoring support, but you definitely need some creative, like, you know, mm. assist people Passes, that, assist, yeah, yeah. that can assist him, that can, that can you know, provide him the, the, the goals. So it depends on what kind of creator you need. Um, and there are many out there. There are many out there. And I'm just, uh, uh, but give me, you're asking me for a name. I, I don't really know. I don't really care which name is as long as they can do what it's the club's job to find yeah, them players. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. with, with that in mind the club could have a new technical director soon enough coming up it's a name you'll recognize but is it the right name this is love sport sport you are listening to the Arsenal fan show here on Love Sport Radio. And those are, of course, the dulcet tones of Doris Day, who tragically passed away today at the old age of 97 on the Arsenal fan show. You're with me, Johnny Burrow and Dan Zachiri of the Daily Telegraph and Giles Aniam of Gunnerstown. And something we've covered on the show before is Arsenal's need for a new technical director. We've been linked with a man formerly of Monaco who knows a thing or two about transfer dealing. We've been linked with moves from within the club. The likes of Steve Morrow have been connected with the role. But we're now hearing that it could be a former gunner in the form of Edu. What would you make of that appointment? Um, I'm not sure what to make of it, really. I've kind of, after Monch, I've kind of gone off this whole technical director thing. I don't know what to think. Look, he's he's technical director at Brazil, so obviously he oversees all age groups. He knows he will know that market extremely well. Maybe this Martinelli guy's coming on the back of his recommendation. I don't know. Um, apparently, he's 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 supposed to be working already with uh, San Leahy on transfer targets this summer, especially replacement for Ramsey and whatnot. Um, so player identification, he probably really knows. You know, he's probably got that kind of that that that, that aspect of his job down pat. Is there an indication, Giles, that he's got a breadth of knowledge? Because I think you're spot on about if you're working with Brazil mm. at all age groups, there will be talents there who you're aware of before other clubs. The next Neymar, that old cliche, if Arsenal could get one of them, none of us would be complaining. But does he have a knowledge of broader markets than just that? Well, that's why you've got the whole scouting department and recruitment department. They'll go out and do the work, won't they? Dog's body work. Yeah, he's then. he's the head of all of yeah. those various departments. Exactly. Uh, I think maybe the scouting department still needs a bit of a refresh mm. but that's going to be his job to oversee because I think there's maybe a few different you've got some of maybe Mislin Tat's people maybe a, a few of the previous regime as well I think I think the the South America thing is interesting because Arsenal in their new guys need to find an edge you know, from somewhere if they're going to spend limited funds uh, and everyone thought it was going to be Sven Mislin Tat 
there's been rumours for quite a long time that Stat DNA was going to be the edge, that um, an Arsenal's analytics department is still quite highly thought of. But the, the, the South American thing, in the way that Arsene Wenger's knowledge of the French market in the late, late 90s, mm. that could be a potential edge. The difficulty is getting those players' work permits mm. because mm. the rule states... You either have to be full international or you have to spend more than £10 million. And it's not just full international. It's a certain percentage yes. of yeah, the yeah. international games yeah. in the last yeah. six months. And, that, and it's quite a high percentage. Yeah, it's, it's notoriously quite difficult. Mm. And that's without getting into the risks of adaptation. Mm. You know, uh, English clubs tend to wait for a South American players to settle somewhere else in Europe. Mm. That's why so many clubs buy from Shakhtar or Porto. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lucas Torreira from Sampdoria is a good yeah. example. Yeah. You know, the fact he's gone from Uruguay to Italy and settled and been fine is a great indication that he's going to be fine in England. Yeah, it's a lot less of a step going from Italy to England than going straight from South America. Um, but yeah, the Martinelli uh, thing is an interesting one because he, I think through his mother, has an Italian passport. Mm. Right, so he's got so an we EU can, passport. We can dodge that. We can do that until October the 29th. And he's a forward or whenever and he's very, very highly rated. Is that right? So I've been told, uh, I, again, I, I don't have any knowledge of the of the Brazilian market, to be honest with you. It, it's a bit of a punt. Yeah, yeah. it's a bit. It's always they're a, all punts, aren't exactly, they? Anyone under yeah. the age of 19, unless they've done something extraordinary mm. like Hazard had when he went to Chelsea, quite, you are taking a punt. It's quite a bit of money, £6 million pounds for mm. a 17-year-old. Yeah, it's not insignificant. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's you, exciting. It's exciting. Yeah. You've got to kiss a few frogs at that. Yeah. You know, when they're at that age. <laughs> exactly. You, you're hoping he's more messy than Wellington Silver. <laughs> you know, you remember him. I'm Wellington gonna... Silver, <laughs> by the way, talking of work permits, there is a cautionary <laughs> tale because he could barely play for the club until he was 37. Yeah. And by that point, he wasn't going to make it. <laughs> exactly. I think the worry, or is it not? It need not be a worry, but is Edu's relationship with the uh, football Legion. fixer Kia Jarabchin, uh, who is good friends with Raul Sanlehi as well. And he's and misbehaved in various deals in the past. There's possibly, yeah, allegedly. Allegedly. Um, and I think that's something Arsenal have missed for quite a long time. I think Arsene Wenger, and this was true of Alex Ferguson as well, they would just not deal with people with those kind of super agents, George Mendes and people like that. And Arsenal undoubtedly have missed out on mm. players because of that refusal. Mm. So this kind of thing, I think, is a good servant but a bad master. I think if you know when to use it, um, it's good, but you mustn't let the, you know, the agent and the dictate the club's policy because I think United post Ferguson got themselves in a bit of a mess with, with Mendes yeah, and, and Raiola as mm. well so that's going to be interesting to see uh, how that develops and talking of potential transfer activity for the club all Arsenal fans will of course be excited by the prospect of young talent coming into the club of course also established world-class talent coming into the club would be quite nice but there's the concerning potential for established talent to leave the club as well. Initially, when we heard these rumours of Lacazette to Barcelona in the summer as a long-term replacement for Luis Suarez, we were all a little sceptical. But they're not going away. They're in all the papers again this morning. Talks of a potential £70 million move. Firstly, do you think he could do the business at Barcelona? And secondly, how much of a loss would he be for Arsenal? See, I think this contract extension is kind of linked to that somehow. You know, whether it's someone, yeah, someone's quite playing, possibly. yeah, you know, uh, I was playing City Buckets. But if I was to take it at face value, then I'd say it could be, it could depend on whether we get Champions League football or not. Because if we don't get Champions League football, we don't really have a choice. We're going to have to sort of like sell to the to the highest bidder. And if Barcelona come in at 70, 80 million, 
Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think we'd necessarily have to sell? Well, we're going to lose 70 million now, aren't we? I think we're on, we're on record. We're on track to lose 70 million if we don't get Champions League mm. football. But lots we of clubs to... do operate at a loss, Charles. I mean, I know yeah, Arsenal don't but, want to. But Arsenal's operate at a self-sustaining uh, uh, model, don't mm-hmm. they? I don't know how many other clubs do that, but yeah, know, they can't. They can't do what Man United do and exactly. just write checks out for for fun. Exactly. Um, exactly. I think 70 million is a is a fair price. Mm. You'd think about it. Um, I just, I, I think, what what would really come of it, really? I, I think it would t- cost Arsenal a similar sum to replace him, and you'd end up running to stand still a little bit. Um, from Barcelona's perspective, I, I think it's a slightly strange one because I think, I think they need a little bit more speed in behind than Lacazette. You know, you got Lacazette likes to come short. Messi's in the hole. You're not moving Messi, so. But you got Dembele. And Dembele seems to be a development, yeah. a work in progress. It depends. Depends yeah. on the next manager, because mm. I, I, Valverde, I'll get the tin tack, won't he? Yeah. I would have thought, but um, yeah, yeah. It's it's weird that they don't play Dembele or yeah. Malcolm. And, and they don't I, trust him at all, no. do they? If they had Dembele next to Lacazette, you know, you could definitely see that. Yeah. One point that you made, Dan, was that Lacazette would be superb in that Firmino role for Liverpool. I think you're absolutely spot on. Could Barca play a kind of system like that where Lacazette would be the nine, but he'd drop and the likes of Malcolm and Dembele, if they did get in the team, could go beyond him? You're playing in Messi's space. Messi's the guy, isn't he? He drops into midfield, he drops deep really deep you don't need two of them to do that do you no no that, that'd be the issue yeah. that is but that is cl- classic Barcelona shape though when I think of Barcelona that's the system you mm. think of them playing it's only recently they've kind of deviated from that under Valverde mm. into a bit more four four two. but um, he's he's got the quality he's got the quality to play at that level but I guess uh, a couple of the stories included links with uh, Samuel Mtiti is a, a sort of uh, he of the no exchange. Yeah. yeah, he's got the same and same knees as Ledley King. I think I've also heard Andre Gomez, the one that. Um, yeah, I, th- I think he's off to Spurs. Yeah, uh, but if Lionel Messi They're is the man, <laughs> if Lionel Messi is the man who keeps Lacazette at Barcelona, it would be quite fitting. He destroys Arsenal every yeah. time he plays them, and yet he could finally do them a favour. This is Love Sport. You're listening to the Arsenal Fan Show here on Love Sport Radio. You're with me, Johnny Burrow and Doris Day. We're celebrating her here on Love Sport Radio after she sadly died at the age of 97. I'm also joined by Giles Aniam of Gunnerstown and Zanja Cheery of the Daily Telegraph. And gents, wonderful news. At the end of a Premier League season that's been hit and miss for the Gunners, they are in a major European final. They're in the Europa League final, an all-English final, of course, taking on Chelsea, a club who they've had a quite good run against in cup finals of late. The stage is set, the fans are excited and it's in Azerbaijan. It's very hard to get there. The clubs have been given 6,000 tickets each and Mkhitaryan might not even be allowed in because of diplomatic issues between Azerbaijan and Armenia. What is going on? It's just another sorry chapter in the uh, decline of European football, I think, really. And I think it's just an absolute disgrace, to be honest, that a country can host the final that cannot guarantee the safety of one of the players who should be participating in it. Uh, if there are those kind of doubts over a country, they should not be hosting a sporting event of this calibre, no matter how much ridiculous 
uh, language they uh, wrap these things in about you know taking helping the development of football in in you know developing countries. Well, there is a point kind of there, but there may also be other elements, well, as of course, you say. Yeah, yeah. We'll come on to the Mkhitaryan situation in more depth later in the show because it is terrifyingly complex. But there's a broader disgrace here, I think, which is the fact that both clubs have only been given 6,000 tickets. This is a stadium that seats almost 70,000 people. Only 12,000 of them are going to be fans of these clubs, certainly on paper, and only they will have got it through the club. It's an absolute horror show. I think I think percentage-wise, they've gotten slightly less tickets than this final last season. Uh, I think I saw that somewhere on Twitter. It is, it is a disgrace. It really is a disgrace. And the fact that um, football or UEFA aren't doing more to try and get fans over there is all is equally a disgrace. Um, you know, we we know Dan. I'm sure you know people. I know we know people that have paying through their arm through their you know through an arm and a leg to get over there. Like Charlie, who's on this show, he's paid the best part of eleven hundred pounds. And that's to just to get there, just by the way. There. You've then got yeah. the ticket, you've got the hotel, yeah. you've got your drink, your yeah. food. You're looking at almost £2,000, potentially, yeah. to watch one game of football. I think yeah. the drink and the food out there is very expensive as well because it's really? an oil-rich um, Country. kind of dictatorship, yeah. basically. And well, there's also an angle of greenness. This is something we've talked about a lot mm, as a economy. country. Mm. Extinction Rebellion, Mm. climate change, everyone Mm. working very, very hard nominally to deal with the threats of global warming. Here we've got two London clubs playing a final and they're each travelling 2,700 miles to get there. Is there an argument, and I am being a bit flippant here, but is there an argument that you say, you know what, Baku, thank you very much for your kind offer of hospitality, but Wembley's lovely this time of year? I think if it could be done, it would be done, but um, these, these decisions are made probably I don't know when they when they announced these the, the venues and whatnot but everyone kind of knew it was going to be back in, uh, back in August you know um, and you know so that, that there's nothing that can be done about that I just feel that um, you know football can do a, a lot more for the fans in terms of getting them over there subsidizing tickets they won't they won't because it's money. It's a money yeah. game, you know. Back, the, the, the foreign ministry and the Baku government uh, football association probably paid, and I'm being really uh, controversial here. They might have, you know, paid Seferin. It's a it's cohorts. a PR exercise. Very, yeah. very hard to know it's a, it's whether a, it's anything a, is it's going It's on a there. PR soft power yeah. exercise for these regimes, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, they can sort of cloak themselves in respectability by yeah. having a, a major sporting event, event in yeah. their country. Um, yeah, if it could be moved, it it, it would be, but um, I think it's set in stone now. Mm. Um, and it's a shame. It's a shame. It's another step towards football being a purely televisual spectacle. Uh, With that, do you think there's a broader point here of football not actually caring about the supporters who go and watch games? We know that already, though. Do you think it's getting worse, Charles? Yeah, I mean, it's just yeah. not just in the ticket prices. You look at the racism. You know, you, you know the victims of racism are saying they're always saying that the, you know football authorities. The the, the 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 penalties or the, the punishments that are meted out are ridiculous. You know, football. It's the, all they care. All the authorities care about is is the spectacle, the, the the money that they make from the TV rights and whatnot. That's the bottom line. The bottom line is the ban is the is, is the is the um yeah is the balance sheet figure. All the other things are platitudes as far as I'm concerned. I mean, the the excuse that they gave for like giving out twelve thousand tickets to the two competing teams is that the airport in Baku can only take fifteen thousand people a day or something like that. I mean, it's just ridiculous. The only, 
it'll only change when tele- television suffers the uh, ignominy of broadcasting games with 50,000 empty seats mm. uh, because that's the one thing television companies don't want. Yeah. It's a big part of the product that's sold around the world. I think when they surveyed fans in, in the Far East about the proposals for a 39th Premier League game, uh, the feedback they got was, no, like we, we, we love watching the authentic domestic atmospheres at of a, you know Liverpool v Man United at Anfield you know and things like that we don't want to go and watch Liverpool v Man United in the bird's nest or, mm. or somewhere mm-hmm. like that so it's important for TV to mm. have four stadiums uh, but so eventually you know ironically as television takes over and becomes even more important it could it could benefit the match going fan because they'll they'll be forced to uh, cut tickets Ticket prices eventually will cap them. Yeah. They've done it with the away games, yeah. haven't they? Yeah. Because they need away ends for. And they've also, the Premier League, you've got to be uh, pitch side now as an away yeah, fan. The, yeah, so places like Newcastle, the, where we're usually yeah. set up in the gods, they're going to have to put Which is completely by. for the benefit of television. Yeah, exactly. But in the end, it's actually worked out. It's yeah. a little bit of a benefit for, yeah. for match-going fans. So yeah. that's, the, that's the best hope, I think. Yeah. Does the complexity of the situation around the final, the difficulty of getting there, the political climate of the game itself detract from your enjoyment of it as Arsenal fans? Is there a feeling that you'll be sitting there watching it and thinking, this is a charade, this is hopeless, what is going on? Or when the day comes round, will you be on the sofa going, yeah, okay, it's in Baku, but it's Arsenal in a European Cup final and I'm here, I'm watching it. And I couldn't care less about all of that. I will be the latter. For those ninety or hundred and eighty minutes, yeah, you know. I would be for the game. Yeah. I guess it depends how likely are you to have gone to the game were it located somewhere else. Um, I think for me personally, I've got holiday booked in the summer. I can't have too much more holiday. I've already paid. <laughs> I've already paid for that first holiday, so mm. I can't uh, shell out too much going on a, a three-day, four-day trip watching Arsenal. So I, I, I was kind of already out the race to uh, to go to the final wherever it was held so it doesn't re- personally I won't feel any great loss but if you were you know if you're somebody who w- was inclined or were able to go to the game were it in Lisbon or Amsterdam or Prague or you know somewhere then uh, yeah yeah it definitely hurt because you don't you don't get to European finals uh, all that often certainly Arsenal don't it's 13 years since the last one I have to say credit to the fans that are going because on the way back from um, Valencia I mean we heard so many different versions of ways that people are thinking of getting to the game or, to, you know, going through Tehran, for instance, or going through Istanbul seems to be... You can drive it. It'll take you 59 hours, yeah, but, but it can be done. Aren't Tehran being, like, sanctioned for some sort of human rights thing or whatever? I don't know. But, you know, people are thinking of the weirdest and wonder, most wonderful ways of, of getting there. And you know, that's credit to the fans. I mean, we you know, they don't like the fact that it's over there, but they're going to there are guys out there who are trying tooth and nail to actually go and support their team. Do you think there's an element for the organising bodies of it being so hard to get to actually possibly being an advantage for them? Because all of the criticism that was initially levelled at UEFA was about the limited nature of tickets available to fans. We were all saying, only 6,000, this is a travesty. But because it's so hard to get there, actually there are indications that the clubs might not get 6,000 fans out there each. And then UEFA can turn around and say, well, look, you don't need much more than 6,000. What are you complaining about? I don't know. I think you under—I think they underestimate fans. You know, um, They're going to be flying out there I anyway. Think, I think they'll, they'll take up their allocations. I know it's a long distance. It's a long way. But I mean, I'm listening to guys on the way back. I mean, people are they're going all. Some of them, they'll go out there. 
you know, you'll, you'll, they'll get out of there, definitely. I think the bigger travesty is you've got the football family, whoever they are, have been doled out tickets, and they'll probably be touting. A lot of, again, allegedly, I don't want to get this station into any trouble, but, you know, there will be tickets that will be meant for football family or whoever, whichever FA from whichever country going out on sale in the black market. Those in charge of security and policing will probably be quite pleased. There's only 6,000 fans each. Mm. Um, I saw a suggestion early in the week that they should have the um, Europa League final in the same place as the Champions League final and have like a four-day, five-day festival of football, uh, which sounds absolutely great, but right. can you imagine what it would be like in Madrid <laughs> this year yeah, with uh, Liverpool? The, 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 exactly. Be, yeah, it'd be so overstretched, wouldn't it? Like, that's going yeah. pr- perhaps too far the other way. Yeah, I think that the, would be The completely... English reputation, particularly <laughs> given there's four teams across those European yeah. finals, they're actually not that keen on us already, probably yeah. fair yeah. enough. And if they had four days of yeah. hammered Englishmen, it might be a bit much for the <laughs> average Spaniard to take. <laughs> Do you think there's a genuine moral question here, though, Giles? Because you suggest, I think rightly, that we're all underestimating the commitment of fans, the commitment to get there, to watch their team. But in that, there is a commitment to spend, as we've established, over £1,000, well over £1,000 to do that. And an ongoing conversation in modern football is whether the game is moving away from the working man. It's meant to be a game for everybody. And you're not meant to be ruled out because of financial concerns, class concerns, racial concerns. But actually, if we're moving to a point where it's going to cost you thousands of pounds to support your team, there is the potential to price out the very people who made the game what it is. There, there is that potential. But I mean, look at look, you look at average match going day at Arsenal. A lot of young fans can't go in anyway. Football, yeah. football doesn't care about them. It's really for the haves and have-nots, really. The age demographic is the big thing. Yeah. The age demographic, because a lot of I think a lot of people get taken to football by their parents or parent, uh, but when they get to 16, 18, they can't afford to go independently yeah. in the way that they used to in the you know, 70s and 80s. And I think that that has a real um, corrosive effect on the atmosphere at games, mm. actually, because I think you get. Uh, and I say this as someone who's still reasonably young, and I don't want to sound embittered towards the <laughs> older generations, but you do, you do get you know people who are slightly jaded mm. uh, and you don't get that fresh energy Freshness, in the yeah. in the crowd yeah um and i think i think when people talk about premier league grounds being quiet mm. i think it's the it's the age of them that yeah. is is the problem necessarily rather than class particularly i mean i've heard you know people say middle class fans make less noise than working class ones but and that might be true to a tiny extent but uh, I, think, a, I think there was i think a couple of years ago there was a there was some kind of survey done about Arsenal fans, and a lot of them, a lot of season ticket holders are middle aged. Yeah, I think know. the average age was like it came as 48, 49. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So that's that's kind of telling you you you're established as you're in your working life. You probably yeah you know you you earn a bit of money. You have to earn a bit of money to get a season ticket to you Absolutely, know, these yeah. days, and you're going to have to earn a lot of money to go over to a place like Baku. I think it's a tough one. It is a really, really tough one for football to manage. They're going to have to get it right. And coming up, we'll be asking the opinion of Gold.com Arsenal correspondent Charles Watts. This is Love Sport. You're listening to the Arsenal Fan Show here on Love Sport Radio. You're with me, Johnny Burrow and Charles Aniam of Gunnerstown and Dan Zachiri of the Daily Telegraph. And I want to turn our attentions away from the Europa League final for a moment, gents. I want to discount its existence. Let's assume Arsenal aren't in it. They fell out of the competition in terrible style away in Naples. 
if the only thing Arsenal had to say for themselves this year was their league finish and Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang's one-third of a golden boot, would that be a good season? I think it would be slightly under par. I don't think it would be a dismal failure, but it certainly wouldn't be a roaring success. I think I expected a 10-point improvement from Arsenal this season as a minimum because Arsenal was starting from quite a low bar. 63 points last season, which was entirely atypical with Arsene Wenger's Arsenal teams. I think a lot of people uh, made the mistake of thinking that that was typical Arsenal and they'd been doing that for five or six years, and they hadn't really. Uh, If you go back to 16-17, they, I think, got 75 points and Mm. finished a point behind Liverpool in fifth. So that's much more of a reflection of where Arsenal and the squad have been Mm. than last season, where I think for obvious reasons they kind of jacked it in towards the end end of the season, particularly in away games. Mm. So I I thought a kind of 10-point bounce is what I expected just through... Uh, the freshness of the new manager, general competency, uh, the quality of attacking players Arsenal have got. And they've fallen fractionally short of that. They've got 70, bumped up one place. Um, and if they got to 74, 75, which is kind of what I was hoping for, they they would have they would have finished third. Uh, and any, any more points than that, I think, would have been into the realms of, wow, that's a really very, very good season. Mm. But... Yeah, I agree c- completely with Dan here. Um, I think if I was to grade it, C D, yeah, C T minus, maybe I don't know. Do you think that's yeah. not a bit harsh, Charles? Because I don't think going into this year, anyone could reasonably have expected Unai Emery in his first full the- year in charge to secure Champions League no, football. No. Right, let me qualify that. As I said last week and before, at the start of the season, any improvement on last season would have been great. But it's just this, you know, the games since Palace. That's really put left a bad taste yeah, in people's mouth. Arsenal just had to be average for the yeah. last six or seven games, and they'd have they've got third or fourth uh, quite comfortably. I think I think why it's difficult to assess is that a lot of the things I would have thought of as low hanging fruit or easy gains, like improving mm. the defensive record, goals against column, uh, the away form, making sure you beat. Uh, the majority of those bottom half teams away where Arsenal slipped up a lot last season. He hasn't really done, um, but he's actually done quite a lot of the advanced stuff that I thought it might take a year or two to get right. Like he'd beaten uh, United, Tottenham Mm. and Chelsea at home. Mm. It's the first time Arsenal have done that in the league since 2001-2, I think, Mm. when they won double. And he's, he's now beaten Valencia home and away after beating Napoli home and away to get to European final. Arsenal's first in 13 years. So is that that's why there's so much quite a lot of debate I mean there's always debate but I think that's what's fueling it it's difficult to assess there's a point on those away wins in Europe and of course an away win in the league against Burnley Arsenal's away form this season has been atrocious we've talked about it time and time again but towards the very end of the season are there encouraging signs that Unai Emery might be working out how to fix it I don't know I don't know it's a small sample size yeah it's a very small Um, sample size um I think it all depends on who he brings in in the summer, really. He's, he's had the season to assess, to have a look, get his eye in on the league. You know, hopefully you're looking at next season with a few more recruits. The, the, the you know the body of work of this season, and then sort of that knowledge going into next season, and, and that's when you're really going to be assessed to see whether he's sort of like progressed the team. I think as we fundamentally. Was, uh, as we were talking about earlier, I think a lot of these away wins have had Lacazette and Aubameyang on the pitch mm. together, which I think is maybe a, a bit of a a towel 
uh, for Emery to learn from going into next season that mm. Arsenal need two goal threats on the pitch mm. at all times, particularly away from home. Um, when you say goal threats... Yeah, not Daniel, necessarily strikers. Not necessarily strikers, but is the suggestion there that actually there is no one apart from the Arsenal strikers in this team currently who do absolutely. represent consistent goal threats? A- absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. That's what all... You look, go back to when Arsenal in the early 2000s were really good away. They didn't just go unbeaten away from home uh, in the unbeaten season. They mm. did it two seasons before that as well. Mm. And you look at Liverpool and City uh, last couple of years. You've got to carry that threat. You've got to really put fear into the opposition that if you give the ball away or you overcommit, you're going to get ripped to shreds. And Arsenal used to have that ca- real counter-attacking menace. Mm. There, were even, there were stories that managers would tell their team uh, not to whip corners into the box in case Arsenal headed it out oh, and the counter-attack on yeah. tell them to and that's how much you can get in the heads of uh, home teams and once teams step back yeah, you've you're half the, you've won half the battle you're yeah. almost there uh, at the moment Arsenal are just giving teams uh, away for most of the season nothing but encouragement because there's not a great deal well hasn't been enough up front to really hurt teams and so they think well well We've not got too much to fear here. Yeah. We might as well throw bodies forward yeah. at every opportunity. Exactly. A defence that's under par. I saw I saw somebody came up with some numbers the other day about um, players from the top six teams who've got, you know, double figures for for, for goals and assists. Mm-hmm. Liverpool and Man City and I think Tottenham have got they've shared it with about four or five players that have come have got ten or pl- ten plus goals and assists, goal involvements as they call it. Yeah. Arsenal, Man United I think Chelsea really struggling. Yep. Really. And we're the best of that lot because we've got the two strikers up front. Yeah, d- you know. did a piece on this a couple of weeks ago that Arsenal's defensive numbers at home and away and where they stand in the league is actually exactly the yeah, same. Yeah. Is it, it Where the big drop-off is, is mm. as an attacking force. Arsenal, I think, are about third, if you look at expected goals at home, expected goals four, this is, uh, about third in the league. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they dropped down to seventh or eighth as an attacking force away yeah. in that metric. So that that's where the problem has been, uh, mainly, or the difference, I should say, between home and away. Mm. It's been far from perfect for Unai Emery in his first year in charge, but the signs are there that he could gradually be building something. And it has to be said that if Arsenal can beat Chelsea in Baku, very few Arsenal fans will be complaining come the end of the season. Coming up, we'll be talking to Goal.com Arsenal correspondent Charles Watts to get his view on a potentially impressive first season in charge. This is Love Sport. You're listening to the Arsenal Fan Show here on Love Sport Radio with me, Johnny Burrow and Giles Aniam of Gunners Town and Danza Cheery of the Daily Telegraph. I'm delighted to say we're also joined on the line by Charles Watts, who is Goals Arsenal correspondent. Good evening, Charles. Thanks ever so much for joining us. We're debating this first season for Emery. Of course, he does have a Europa League final to come. But in terms of that league form, that away league form, the home league form and the league finish, what's your assessment on the job he's done? Evening, chaps. Um, It's an interesting one. I think an awful lot depends on what happens in Baku in terms of how Emery's going to be viewed by many after his first season. Personally, I think he's done a really good job. Um, it's a shame how the league ended. It's a shame those last few games. and There's going to be a lot of regret, certainly from Unai himself, but from a lot of people at the Emirates, I think, in terms of how they've managed to throw away a top-four place, really, when you sort of look back at those last results and just needing basically one win from Brighton, Palace, 
Wolves, Leicester, Everton was all it needed and managed to to not secure it. So there's going to be a lot of regret about that. But I still think there's definitely been progress made. The, the big issue is defensively they haven't really improved. They conceded 50 goals for the second league season in a row. I think you've got to go back about 35 years for Arsenal to have done that. And that's not good enough. And when... When, when you've got a strike force like Aubameyang and Lacazette, they really should be securing a top four. And the fact they haven't is down to the fact they haven't improved defensively. And I think we all hoped when Emery arrived that he was going to sort that out. It was going to be the major thing, given he's known as this meticulous planner and everything, and he hasn't been able to do it. There have been factors in that, injuries and, and so on, but there's still the same defensive issues are still there. And that's the big, the big worry for me, is that he hasn't been able to fix that. But I still think he's done a good job, and I think the progress is there against the top teams. They've played well um, away from home. They've, you know, they have improved slightly on last season at home. They're still strong, barring the last little couple of weeks. So, for me, he's done a good job. If he goes and wins in Baku, he's done an excellent job, and I think it would be tough to argue against that. Hi, Charles. Dan here. Um, where do you stand on this debate that Unai Emery? hasn't or he's failed to imprint a consistent style of play in his first season at Arsenal. Is that something that concerns you or do you think it's a lot of navel-gazing and it's slightly overblown from Arsenal fans? I, I think it's the fact that he hasn't really got the players that he really wants to play in the position for. He's not really, you know, he's been scrambling around using wing-backs to try and get, to try and bring some width because he's got no wingers in the squad and the club didn't manage to get sign anyone in January and uh, other than Suarez, who you know, basically we'll forget about. Um, but you know, he's been playing three at the back with wing backs. He's never done that in his career before. He's very much a four-two-three-one type man with wingers feeding the striker, and he's not got that. So um, I think he's been desperately trying to find the formula that works so he can get the best out of what he's got at his disposal. And I think after this window, I think the squad's going to be look pretty different. I think he's going to have. I think we'll see the end of the wing back, the three at the back system. I don't think he wants to do that long term. And, um, so I think it's been tough for him to really, really get an imprint on the on the squad in terms of what, how he wants to play and the formation he wants, just because he's not really got the players to do it. They're crying out for wingers, absolutely crying out for him. And especially in that last little run at the end of the season, it was so predictable in attack and um, without real genuine threat out wide. And, um, I think we'll see that we'll see that sorted out in the summer, and I think hopefully next season you'll begin to see a real Unai Emery side start to take shape. Because I can understand why people don't have become a little bit frustrated by that, because the football's not that great at times, certainly in the second half of the season, and we're not seeing a we're not I don't know you're not seeing that real uh, a vision of how Arsenal want to play under Unai Emery. But I think we will see that next season. I certainly hope so. Uh, hi, Charles. In, in the short term, you've got the final coming up. You've got Chelsea. Um, in our last game against Chelsea at home, we saw um, Aaron Ramsey really do a number on um, Jorginho, sat on him, disrupted their game. And that, I think, was a key part, a key element of how we you know, won the game really professionally. In the final now, we have, we do, it looks like we're not going to have Aaron Ramsey. Who do you play in that, that key role? I mean... I was there at um, Valencia on Thursday night, as you were too. I wasn't that uh, impressed with um, Ozil's ability to sort of like cover um, their number 10, was it Parejo? So looking yeah. at the final, who would you play? If if we are going to play in that sort of like 10 role with split strikers, who would you play in that role there? I think he'll play Ozil. In terms of who I'd play, I'd... 
I think I'd probably go with Ozil as well. I know what you mean. I know Ramsey's done done that job really well, but you kind of hope Torreira could do that um, in in Baku because it's going to be key. And you know, Emery will know that. I think he's going to he's going he's to be well aware that if you stop Jorginho, that you're going to have a good chance of disrupting Chelsea's rhythm. Um, and yeah, you were right. Ramsey was great in uh, at the Emirates. He was one of Arsenal's best performances of the season. I think they were very very comfortable in, in terms of how they won that game, but. I would hope that Torreira can can do that and can do a bit of a number and get about uh, get about the midfield and and win that disrupt Chelsea as much as possible. But I mean, look, it's, it's impossible to to not look at Ramsey's injury and think it's going to be really really costly for Arsenal in terms of that final. You'd feel a hell of a lot more comfortable going to uh, taking on Chelsea with him there. But I still think you leave her to win. I'm not sure. I, I don't, if you're going to go with that. One a ten behind the two strikers. I don't think you play Mkhitaryan there. I just don't think he's been good enough recently. I'm, I, I agree. You won't be allowed in the country, Charles. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Obviously, Mickey's not even going to be available because of the fast of where the final is. Um, Sorry, Charles. You, think... you said that um, you would you would expect Torreira to to sort of like sit on. Um... Georgina. I'm not saying I'm not sure it will necessarily sit on him. Right, I don't think you can probably do that up. in that position. But I think he's going to be the man tasked with when Gino is on the ball to, mm-hmm. to get in and about as much as he can. Because I don't think, I'm not sure they're going to be able to play anyone as an out and out man marker on him. Because so, certainly, like I said, it's, it's certainly not going to be Urzel. Um, so I think it's just going to be Torres going to be tasked with doing that job as, as best as he can. So my, my my other question, loaded onto that, then is you've got Hazard playing on the left and he's going to go up against Ainsley Maitland Niles. That means, I mean, again, you'd expect that Aubameyang to do the, the, the role of two players, which is get back and help, you know, um, uh, uh, Maitland Niles in that situation and also be the man at the uh, the pointy end of the attack, I guess. Mm. He did that very, very well in Valencia. Mm. I thought he was he was excellent over there. I've never seen him work so hard. I think it was his best performance in Arsenal, shot hands down over there. Um, and and I think he'll do that. I just don't think you can really add another man to that midfield and still be. Uh, I think Arsenal will be too conservative. Say if you whack Guendouzi in there as well and add an extra man in, in the middle, and I don't know what else you what else you can do. I think that would make like I said, it would make Arsenal too conservative and it would play into Chelsea's hands a little bit. I think you've got if you're Arsenal, you've got to keep you've got to have Bamiang Lacazette up there and then someone some sort of supply line in the central areas and for me that's Ozil in back I just can't I'm, I'd be worried if Arsenal go over midfield and get a, a conservative approach in midfield I think Chelsea will just get on the ball and eventually grind them down um, and so yeah no, I'd still stick with Mesut I think it's ridiculous we've been talking about this considering he's the highest paid owner <laughs> in the club um, and he's Mesut Ozil and we're, we're debating whether it's worth him playing in a final <laughs> Um, but I think I, I would personally go without. I think for me it'd be Xhaka, Xhaka and Torreira in the two in the sort of holding holding roles with Ozil uh, ten and Aubameyang Lacazette up front, and then obviously the the wing backs. Mm, interesting stuff, Charles. The Europa League final is, of course, just one game of football. It should ignore history. It should ignore current form. But do you, how much of an advantage do you think Unai Emery's success in this competition in the past is going to be, if only to get in Chelsea's heads? I think it'll be. An, I think it'll be an advantage. I, don't, I think it's impossible to ignore just how good he's been in this competition. He knows how to win it. The players, the Arsenal players, know he knows how to win it, so they'll trust him completely with whatever he comes up with. Uh, whether Chelsea trusts Sarri completely, I'm not. I'm not sure. 
Um, and so I think it will have an it will have an advantage. It's not going to be massive, but it's, it's ninety minutes of football. Teams two very good teams. It's it's an absolute fifty fifty match. This one, I don't think anyone can go into it and really say they're favourites. But I do I do believe every, out of the two, I I trust Emery to do a bit of a number on Sarri more than I trust Sarri to do a number on Emery. So as an Arsenal watcher as an Arsenal fan uh, I'm, I'm quite happy that we're going into it with uh, with Emery in charge against Sarri and I think the game at the Emirates as well how comfortable Arsenal were in that game um, and how comfortably they won it I think will certainly be in, be in the Arsenal players minds and probably be in the back of the Chelsea players minds as well. Another topic of discussion is the uh, is the goalkeepers there's no doubt in my mind that if Arsene Wenger was still in charge he, he would stick with Czech and give him the final is there any hint whatsoever or any feeling that Emery might not do that and switch to Leno? No, I don't think so. I think he'll certainly he'll stick with Czech. Um, I'd be surprised all, all the noise out of Arsenal, everything, the way they've approached it, everything is you know, one more game um, thing for Czech. So I think he'll certainly start. I mean, I asked, I sat down with Bert Leno a couple of weeks ago in London Colney and I asked him about, about that sort of um, about the whole Ben Foster thing with Jorge Gomez at Watford, for, uh, saying he would reject the chance to play in the final if uh, Gracia asked him to. Now, but out of respect for Gomez, and uh, I asked Leno if he'd do the same, and he just flat out basically said, "No way, I'll play in the final." <laughs> but I wouldn't, I wouldn't turn that down. I don't get to play in too many finals too often, um, which I like. I like that attitude, to be fair. But um, I think he's going to be dis- disappointed. I'm pretty sure Czech's going to start. Yeah, both desperate to play and good, I think, to hear that Bernd Leto isn't one for sentimentality. He's one for winning games of football, which, of course, is the main aim for Arsenal in Baku. Charles, thanks ever so much for your time. Charles, what's their Arsenal correspondent for goal? Interesting, that potential for sentimentality from a football manager. That's something we'll come on to at the end of the show. But first, Mkhitaryan might well not even be... This is Love Sport. The introduction to that song is, of course, Doris Day, who we're celebrating here on Love Sport Radio after her sad death today at the age of 97. Now, ahead of the Europa League final, I think it's fair to say that most Arsenal fans have concerns. It's in Baku. It's going to cost them over £1,000 to get there. 59 hours if they drive, 10 hours if they fly, 97,000 trains if they choose to get there by railway. But Arsenal Football Club themselves have concerns as well. They've come out and said that they are hugely concerned that Henrik Mkhitaryan could miss the final. The Armenian winger has missed games in Azerbaijan this year, of course, against Karabag in the group stages of the Europa League for Arsenal. He missed games in Azerbaijan in 2015 in the same competition whilst playing for Borussia Dortmund. This is because there are no diplomatic relationships between Armenia and Azerbaijan because of a long-standing conflict over the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh region. Now, beyond just being Armenian, Mikatarian has gone into this region in the past and performed aid work. He's not going to be a popular man with the Azerbaijani embassy, all the people making the decisions about those permits. Azerbaijan, of course, usually doesn't allow foreign nationals, even if they're just of Armenian descent, to enter the country. He's not going to be allowed in. He's not going to be allowed to play. And Arsenal Football Club are now in a situation where, regardless of Mkhitaryan's form, one of their highest paid players, one of nominally their most potent attacking threats, can't play in a game of football 
A, because of political disputes, and B, because the country the final is played in cannot guarantee the safety of all the players involved. It's a disgrace. It's funny because I read a, <clears throat> a quote, actually, from the Azerbaijani foreign ministry. I don't know. I've got a feeling, because it wasn't picked up widely. I'm wondering if it's an old quote. But they said um, many major sports events have been hosted in Azerbaijan and the Armenian athletes have taken part in them. Sports and politics are separate. And that's coming from the, the Azerbaijani foreign ministry. Do you think sport and politics are separate, Charles? I think they're, they're, they are bedfellows. But, um, you know, they, that's in response to the, the UEFA statement saying they that they were seeking assurances from... Um, the UEFA and uh, the, uh, from Azerbaijan that um, you know Arsenal players and would be uh, have the security safety. So I don't know. Um, I think it's the guaranteeing of the safety that's the issue, mm. isn't it? I think yeah. I think there are ways in which Henrik Mkhitaryan could uh, visit the country or enter the country. Uh, it's just that the amount of sec- security uh, it would need to protect the, the Arsenal hotel and getting on the coach it would be a bit of a circus. I think. Um, but you're absolutely right, and th- this is completely separate from anyone's opinion on Henrik Mkhitaryan as a footballer, mm. or the sort of season he's had, or whether he's worth the wages he's on. It's nothing to do with that at all. Uh, the fact of the matter is, when a club is in the Europe major European final, they should be able to pick from a mm. full complement of players, and the players shouldn't be denied the the chance to play in the game. Moving on to the football, though, he he is regardless of his inconsistencies, he's a player Unai Emery would definitely want in the squad at the very least because he's quite a versatile player. You thought he'd get on the pitch, wouldn't he, Dan? I think there's a good chance, particularly with uh, Aaron Ramsey out injured, unless he makes a miraculous recovery. So uh, there's no doubt Unai Emery would want him available and he'd be heavily involved, even even if not as a starter, I think he'd be first change off the bench Mm. uh, at worst. So it's, it's definitely a loss for Emery. Is there an argument, and we haven't had confirmation from Azerbaijan as to whether there is going to be a possibility of Mkhitaryan being involved, if he isn't allowed, if at political, geopolitical level, he isn't allowed into the country, is there an argument that Arsenal could put forward perhaps even a legal case saying this isn't fair? We're not playing this game of football on a level playing field because one of our players isn't allowed to play. How would you feel if Willian couldn't travel for factors out of his control? It could become known as the court of arbitration for sport final, couldn't it? Because, uh, <laughs> Chelsea are going there as well for their transfer ban. So um, I don't know, but yeah, I think there is a that they could make maybe they could make. I don't I don't know enough about the uh, the, the legality. It's, tri- of the it's really a tricky because from a moral standpoint, you expect Arsenal to do such a thing, you know, to uh, make a stance. But there's a lot of politics behind this, uh, you know, uh, in play. I mean, you've got this this FIFA World Cup Cup thing that a lot of the top European clubs will want to be involved in simply because of the streaming rights that would be involved in that. Arsenal starts making trouble with UEFA or FIFA. That could jeopardise their, it's, you know, chances of, of make, being on that top table. It's not good politics from Azerbaijan, yeah. though, at no, all. It's, it's terrible PR. You know, they're, they're hosting this event to try and, uh, you know, display themselves as a an open cosmopolitan country that can host the biggest events. And one of the biggest name players in, on both teams... Uh, can't even get into the country. You know, it's a, a disaster from mm. from a public relations but perspective. It's not, it's not. It's not. It's not. It's not uncommon with the football authorities. I mean, they've put the World Cup in a in a country where there's yeah. so many restrictions to human rights. You know, simply because 
they want soft politics and, and money and, you know, yeah. and exposure. So it's not uncommon what we're seeing here. Do you think money is damaging the game, Charles? Yeah, I mean, morality has become a side. It's, 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 it's left in the gutter. Morality has been left in the gutter. We've known that for a little while. It's just becoming more and more obvious, you know. Um, Set Blatter changed the voting system from federation, from whatever it was before to every man has a vote so that he can basically curry favour with them and sort of like, you know, get, eat up more votes, you know. Um, and so I think Azerbaijan have been member states for 25 years or whatever, whatever yeah. it is now. So people would argue that they have every right to to put in and, 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 and you know, and tender for a bid to host a major sporting event. So, you know... But the, the, the you know we all we all believe that you know there's there's dark arts going on behind the scenes that certain pe- certain certain federations are getting um, favourable outcomes. I think if you go to the newspaper archives, you'll see that there's articles from the 1930s saying that money is ruining football <laughs> when uh, you know players first got fifty pound a week or something, saying it was absolutely ludicrous. So do so we you, just need to get on with it, Dan? Is, no, is no, this no, part no, no, no. Is this part I, I, of the game though? Seriously, I think, I think it's important to have that context uh, that you know. The role of money in football um, has been a constant worry throughout the history of football among fans and journalists and uh, and, the, and the public. Uh, I do think what the difference now is instead of rich men or proprietors uh, and their individual interests um, reigning supreme, you have states, governments and, and blocks of countries uh, exerting their, their diplomatic financial strength. Uh, and that that's quite different from, you know, the factory owner who runs his football club at Huddersfield or somewhere. I mean, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, you look at PSG, they were the, the QSI were threatening to scale back their funding. And hmm. OK, we might laugh at it, but a lot of French clubs will be thinking, oh, that means our player that we could have sold in them, them to for 50 million yeah. might not be able to do. So it, it, it affects their economy. It does affect economy. That's how big these, uh, you know, football states are now. And there's a slight siege mentality, actually, at UEFA, I think, and among the top European clubs about the uh, the amount of wealth in the Premier League, particularly in the latest TV deal, and which is why there are these discussions about a possible European Super League as a as a counterweight mm. to the the power of the Premier League. And uh, strangely enough, four four English teams getting to the finals might not be the best <laughs> thing in the long run. It could be uh, it could be the sort of poking the bear if, if you. Yeah. Well, it's an all-English Europa League final, but whoever wins, football is coming second. This is Love Sport. You're listening to the Arsenal Fan Show here on Love Sport Radio with me, Johnny Burrow, Giles Aniam of Gunners Town and Daniel Zachiri of the Daily Telegraph. And earlier in the show, we were speaking to Goals Arsenal correspondent Charles Watts, who told us his assessment of Unai Emery's first season in charge. He said... As things stand, he's done a decent job, a good job, in fact. But if he can win that Europa League final against Chelsea in Baku, he'll have done a very, very good job indeed. Gents, with that in mind, how's he going to do it? How should Arsenal line up? It's been very difficult to predict what Unai is going to do all season, but I would be very surprised. I'm absolutely certain he's going to play a 4-4-2 diamond exactly like he did in the home game earlier in the season. I think you've got to have the two strikers on the pitch. I don't think a back three will be a particularly good matchup against Chelsea because they just play one up front. And I think Unai Emery will be worried about Hazard and potentially Pedro dropping into those channels behind the wing-backs in that system. 
And I, I think Higuain up front, I don't think Arsenal need three centre-backs. So I think having two will be enough. I think he can get away with a back four because with two weeks rest, I think you'll see a better Koscielny and a better Monreal at left back. I think it will... I think there was a similar circumstances around the the away North London derby. I think there was quite a long build up to that, maybe mm. an eight day break, mm, mm, yes. and it and I think you really saw the best of Koscielny and Monreal that day. They were very fresh. Do you still have confidence in those two men? They've had sensational careers at the Emirates. They've been loyal servants, reliable defenders. They are getting on a bit. They're losing a yard of pace. They've both had injuries. Do you back them in a major European final? One off. Uh, I'd, you'd hope that Koscielny could, could his, his yeah. body would hold up. One you? last effort. Yeah. I think you've got to protect him though, and I think yep. we know what he did at Tottenham. He did four, he played four centre rides eventually, mm. you know, mm-hmm. against Tottenham. Maybe I don't know if he does it, but then Tottenham played slightly different from 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 yeah. Chelsea. So they haven't got loads of runners in behind Chelsea. They haven't got loads of mm. pace. They've got they've got people who can dribble with the ball, mm. uh, Hazard and Willian. But they've got you know Higuain up front fairly static not bad movement in the box if you talk to Chelsea fans about him at the moment they absolutely hate him they think he's awful yeah he's not he's never been uh, should we say the most natural athlete Mm. Um, might be the polite way of putting it he likes pies yeah he's well well lunched I think Um, (laughs) uh, so I think I think Socrates and Koscielny against Higuain is fine I I don't think we need who's your left I I think he'll go Monreal really because because, I think he's not very good in the back four or Partly, and also because I think Maitland-Niles will be on the other side. Yeah. I think Maitland-Niles and Kalasanac on both sides in a four, I think, is a little bit too mm. bold. Mm. Uh, and I think the reason I think he'll go for a diamond, you know, is for all the reasons I've said. And also, you'll then get the three in midfield to match Chelsea's three, because mm. I think that's where Chelsea are strongest. Yeah. You know, and they have Jorginho. Um, I don't know if Kante's Kante's been in and out injured, and I think they're playing Loftus-Cheek. Loftus-Cheek and, and Barkley. And Barkley, yeah. Yeah, yeah. quite physical... Um, mm. midfield three so I think he'll play Shaka Torreira and Guendouzi mm. On that Jorginho point a lot's been made of his significance to this Sarri system and of course it was discovered by Spurs actually that if you stick someone on Jorginho you can stop Chelsea ticking is that the way that Arsenal should approach them and if so who's the man to do the sitting? I think you'd be stupid not to if you know that's <laughs> you know that's their, 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 their centre point their key point then you, you'd be stupid to ignore him. How we do that, I mean, Charles has said that he reckons it'll be Ozil that starts. Ozil's not going to cover him. <laughs> Ozil's not going to cover anybody. Yeah, um, and so you're kind of leaving it, you're, you're leaving yourselves a bit open, but I I, I just, I, I don't know how he's going to, I don't know, I don't know how he's going to combat that. I mean, you said Mkhitaryan possibly could come in and start and do a job. He's not actually bad at doing jobs. If you say to him, mm-hmm. do, I mean, he's done a stint at right back uh, at Rennes. He didn't do too badly. Yeah. Um, you know, so maybe uh, he could come in and do it. But he I won't be allowed in. Oh, yeah. I mean, he might be. No, no, no. He he, he might be, Charles. Yeah. It's not. It's not a foregone conclusion yeah. that he won't be. Yeah. But I, I don't think we can bet on his inclusion. If he yeah. if he isn't, then I think it has to be Ozil. Yeah. Realistically, mm. uh, I think maybe the other option is play a Wobi at the tip of a diamond. It's quite God. a hard worker. Yeah. Total absence of any kind or of end product. We were discussing off air. If you're going to play Ozil and the two strikers, you when Chelsea are building from the back with and Kepa's on a goal kick, you flip it round and put Lacazette on Jorginho yeah. and tell Ozil to go and mark yeah. David Luiz. Yeah, yeah, um, that's a good. Yeah, I like that. Th- that that's an option. Yeah, I like that option actually. Uh, and then when you win the ball back, you flip into flip normal. Flip it around, yeah, again. 
there's yeah, an, more shape. There's another question of the team selection, of course, because there's a potential for some sentimentality here from Unai Emery. It is going to be Petr Cech's last game as a professional footballer, not just at Arsenal, but the end of his career, regardless of whether he features for Arsenal or not. And Gunnerstown's own Dave Seeger has run a poll on Twitter. Sure, this has been done, but ahead of Monday's Gunnerstown radio pod, a simple poll, Europa League Cup final, do we play Czech? Do we play Leno? Now, of course, Czech has been Unai Emery's Europa League goalkeeper. He's played every game so far. Only 37% of over a 1,000 respondents want Czech to play. 63% are saying, I don't care, it's his last game. Can him. Leno is the safer choice. What are you two saying? I think I think he'll go with Czech. He's I, got to, hasn't yeah, he? Yeah. I, I, again, I, look... On Thursday, I watched him. I really watched his distribution. It was terrible. Mm. I mean, it did. One of his Problem. goal kicks did lead to a goal, but generally, he he, he can't play. For, he can't play through the press. So he just he just hoofs it up into the air and as far away from him as possible. That's my only issue with him. But having said that, he saved us numerous times in this competition this season. Mm. If you look at the Rens game and other games, Carabag as well. He's you know he's been really he's been one of our standout performers. So I've got no issue with you know him. Being in goal, it's just that, you know, his distro for me is a real issue, but, you know. Is there any room for sentimentality for Emery? Because you should obviously show the respect to one of the great goalkeepers of the Premier League era and say, Petter, thank you for your service, not just to Arsenal, but perversely also to Chelsea. You, of course, start. But as an Arsenal fan, if you really believe that the inclusion of Bernd Leno will not just make you more likely to win silverware, but there's a lot more on the line here because it's Champions League qualification we're talking about, would you not say, you know what, Petter, I'm sorry, but we've got to win this game? I think it all comes down to what was said before the season started. Mm. I think if Unai Emery has sat them down and said, uh, Petr Cech, you're going to get the cup games, which, by the way, I'm just thinking as I'm talking here, he might not have done because he started with Cech in the league yeah. and Leno in the cup. So he mm. could have he could be thinking on the hop a little bit here. Mm. Uh, if you've made the promise at the start of the season, I think you have to keep it. Because also I heard Tim Stillman, Giles, make this point that if the rest of the players see him break a promise with a player, yeah. that's a big uh, blow goes. to his mm. credibility. But uh, I, I would rather see Bernd Leno in goal. I think he's a better mm. all-round goalkeeper at the moment. I think what Unai... Do you know what I think Unai Emery will be hoping? I bet he'll be hoping Petr Cech pulls his calf in training. <laughs> <laughs> and he'll if be he really hoping. you're saying that Emery will play him? He'll play him, yeah, yeah I think so. I think so. Yeah. Uh, there was um, somebody dug out an example, a similar example. It might have been at Sevilla, maybe Valencia. There was there was a similar scenario with a goalkeeper in a cup final. Uh, and he, he went for the so-called sentimentality option. But uh, I, I reckon he'll be hoping for a sneaky small injury, <laughs> make the, take, take the decision out of his hands, and then he can play Burnt Leno with no problems. And elsewhere in the team, who are the key men? Well, we've, we've, we've spoken about the front two all evening. Um, midfield is going to be... I think Torreira's got a big yeah, job. Yeah. I think I think he'll play, whatever system we play, he'll play close to the right of the midfield, and he'll go and help out, make the nulls with Hazard. Has to, absolutely. He played, has that, to. he played that role in the home game quite yeah. a lot. He went and covered for the full-backs, yeah, because throughout you, the game, if you remember the f- our first game over there at Chastanford, yeah. it was Mkhitaryan who was tasked to help Bellerin, and yes. he didn't really. No, no, he let he, yeah. um, let a guy go he for the first let, goal. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, but yeah, so he'll he'll, he'll have to get somebody out to help um, Bellerin um, make the runs, and that has to be uh, Torreira's role as the right-sided midfielder. I think the 
the left side of Chelsea's back four is their weakness, mm. where you got David Luiz and then whoever plays at left back. Where it's, I think Emerson's done okay actually. They mm. seem to quite like him, but Marcus Alonso's Those like, oh, isn't he? Yeah. Arsenal have absolutely yeah hammered Winston, him in yeah. some games. Although he's, he's scored a few goals against Arsenal, yeah. but defensively he's, he's really suspect. really struggled. Yeah. So I think that's where they'll be targeting. Lacazette loves to pull into that channel, uh, and if Maitland-Niles can. If it is Alonso, I hope it is Marcus Alonso. <laughs> if if Maitland Niles can square him up and push and run, yeah. he could get a lot of joy against yeah. him. Well, encouraging signs for Arsenal. And even in a game where they could be without one of their start names for political reasons, I still find it absolutely bizarre. It could be a chance not just for silverware in Unai Emery's first season in charge, but Champions League qualification as well. What an achievement that would be. Join us next week on the Arsenal Fan Show. Thanks for downloading this podcast from Love Sport Radio. For more, go to lovesportradio.com for all the latest podcasts, news and views. Or for more, follow us at Love Sport Radio on Twitter. 